Welcome to Lake Mount Worship Center, connecting you to the life-changing presence of Jesus Christ. We hope that you are blessed and inspired by today's message. All right, what a great weekend last week, amen, with uh, Pastor Chris and Nikki Mathis and uh, just having them here with us. I think we'll have them again sometime. I think that was just a great uh, kingdom connection. And we're pressing in this year, uh, looking to become devoted. Everybody say devoted. Devoted. And so we're pressing into that theme. We want to live a fasted lifestyle. What does that mean? When you fast, when someone fasts and prays, what they're doing is they're setting aside food, which isn't wrong. They're just saying, I'm setting that aside to devote whatever attention might be given to food and its preparation and its enjoyment. And I'm saying, God, my greatest hunger is for you. Now, you can't do that for your whole life. You can do that for about 40 days, and then it starts to become detrimental. But a fasted lifestyle is to abstain uh, from things that can, uh, you know, not be necessarily harmful, but aren't necessary in our pursuit of God. And so we looked at the example of the Nazarite, the, the ones who, was, who in the Old Testament, they set aside, uh, you know, getting their hair cut, which really speaks to just setting aside vanity, not worrying what I look like. I just want to go after God. How many know that's still worthwhile today? I don't care what I look like. I just want to go after God. They set aside alcohol and, uh, you know, the, the, they had to read the fine print and not, you know, not be eating anything with grapes in it or raisins in it. And so they're, 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 they're not just consuming what everyone else consumes. They're being careful of that. And they weren't allowed to be in touch with, with death as represent, representation of resurrection. And so uh, that, that is not a requirement. We looked at this. The Nazarite takes that vow because they want to. And so, so where we're heading this year is not a de- decree or a command, but for those who want to, for those who feel the Lord stirring in their heart, I want to go deeper in my relationship with God and I'm not just crossing my fingers and hoping it happens, but I'm going to invest in my pursuit of God by abstaining from things, what those things might be, would be some things that can, uh, you know, just alleviate and free up attention. Let me just say this for free. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to say this is what everyone needs to do. I'm not saying that this is uh, a holier moment. I'm just saying I have, since the beginning of this year, I, I, if you've messaged me on social media, you haven't heard from me because I just shut it all down. And I'm really enjoying it. So I'm just, I'm just <laughs> saying that, that you don't realize how much, even just things like that, even if you just go on for a couple minutes here or there, it just pirates your attention. And, and so it, it's not a requirement. It's just, hey, I wanted to. So I, I, I responded. I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And I'm enjoying it. So anyways, that's just for free. Um, sounds like a tank's going by. Okay, so we want to be the living sacrifice that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12. That's really what we're pursuing as a church family. We want to put our lives on the altar because we want God's fire. And fire always falls on sacrifice. Amen. That's good to know. And so I want to offer to God what he's not asking for. I want to give him uh, more devotion and be more devoted. So I want you to go with me this morning to Acts chapter 2. And we're going we're gonna to take a bit of a tour through scripture this morning. And I'll do my best to be on time as we're going to conclude at the Lord's table in communion. 
In Acts chapter 2, in the beginning of the chapter, the first believers, about 120 of them, were assembled on the top floor of a large house to devote themselves to praying and waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus had, prior to this, uh, said to them that he was going to be returning to heaven and that it was good for them. He said, it's good for you that I'm going to go because he was going to send the Holy Spirit. So he told them, don't leave Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high. Make this a devoted stance that you won't go ahead and do life without the Holy Spirit. Don't leave until you've been clothed with power from on high. Don't consider the power of the Holy Spirit to be something that you already have and don't consider it to be optional, but lock in to the place of prayer until he comes. And so it must have sounded strange for those first followers of Jesus when he said, it's good for you that I go. It must have sounded strange to just say, I'm not going to be here, but it's better because the Holy Spirit's coming. And as strange as it may have sounded to them, What we can appreciate here in Canada in 2024 is, the reality is if the Holy Spirit did not come, you and I could not know Jesus. When Jesus was on the earth, he was in one place at one time. And so if Jesus was still on the earth in one place at at one time, if you wanted to know Jesus, you would have to book a flight, probably go to Jerusalem, and stand in a long line and have a minute or two with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But when he said, it's good that I go because the Holy Spirit's going to come, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart when you ask for Jesus because God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, not in competition but in partnership together, that when we pray a prayer of salvation, asking God to forgive us, asking Jesus to cleanse us through what he paid for on the cross, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. We say Jesus lives in our heart, but really it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and bears witness to you that you belong to Jesus. And as we've just worshiped for the last, you know, almost an hour, why do we do that? Because we love him. How do we love him? It's the Holy Spirit. He shows us Jesus. And so it's good that Jesus went because the Holy Spirit could come and show us Jesus and bring us into relationship with Jesus. So when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the church was baptized into him in Acts chapter 2. And that first church in that first century had fruitful ministry that was the multiplication of the ministry of Jesus. Think about that. That when you read the book of Acts, what you see is multiple ministers operating in the same spirit and anointing as what was on Jesus. What we saw Jesus do, as you read through the book of Acts, you know, like when when there was an unfortunate name, when there was a girl named Dorcas who died. It's in the book of Acts. You can look it up. When she died, Peter did what he saw Jesus do. And he went into the room, sent people out, and spoke to her to come to life, and she came to life. How did he do that? The same spirit that was on Jesus was resting on him. And so that descending of the Holy Spirit to come and inhabit the church began in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. The spirit of truth and the spirit of power that was resting on Jesus came to rest on the church. Now, it would seem to me that if we want to have the intimacy and the power and the effectiveness of the first Christians, we ought to adopt the same devotion and discipline that they had. 
Otherwise, we're just wishing, right? So thankfully, the Bible provides us with a succinct list, which we can apply to ourselves, which we can apply as a local church family. And by consistency of application to these same things, I believe that we can anticipate the same intimacy and power and effectiveness of the early church. That's not presumptuous. That's the promise of God's word. And so in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast, the Holy Spirit's poured out in that prayer meeting, and those 120 believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostle Peter gets up, and he preaches with fresh power, with fresh authority, and he spoke to the people that were gathered for that Jewish feast about the fact that they had crucified the Lord of glory and that they needed to ask for his forgiveness and thus be born again. So I want us to pick up on the end of his message. If you're in Acts chapter 2, just jump down to verse 40. So he finishes this message saying that the substance of what I've been saying. And then he finishes with this, verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted were, his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Not bad. Not bad for day one of the church. 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit, one message, and the church is 3,000 people by the end of the day because God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. We want that same power, that same effectiveness, that same intimacy. So what were their devotions? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Everybody say devoted. devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so today, we want to just kind of look at the, the, the message. We're going to start in this series of the devoted. They devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. And so we want to look at the message that dominated the preaching of the early church. So as I just said, on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he preaches about how they crucified Christ and they needed to ask for his forgiveness. 3,000 people got saved. The story continues that they're walking into the temple and a lame beggar gets healed and Peter and John just say, we don't have money, but what we have, we give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. The man begins to jump and leap and everyone knows this guy as he's been lame for you know 40 years and so they're investigating this miracle and again, Peter and John begin to preach to the onlookers of about 2,000 people, uh, of the onlookers, and then they, they get arrested. And so about 2,000 more people get saved by Acts chapter 4, verse 4. So they were warned to stop preaching, and the church prays for more boldness, and they get more filled with the Holy Spirit by the end of chapter 4. You guys need to stop doing what you're doing. Well, judge for yourselves if, we're, if we should obey you or obey God. We're just going to keep preaching. We can't stop it. And so then... Peter's shadow is anointed. He walks the streets. People get healed and delivered, Acts chapter 5. Then they get thrown in jail. But some angels let them out, and they preach again. How committed were they to preaching? Are we in a rut, or is this the commitment of the church? They kept preaching. 
get thrown in jail. The angel lets you out. I guess I know what I'm supposed to do. I'll preach again. And so he preaches again. And the gospel keeps spreading. Then Stephen, who is a deacon, is so anointed, he preaches with such an authority in Acts uh, chapter 6 through Acts chapter 7. Actually, one of the longest recorded sermons in Scripture is from Stephen the deacon. It's a fantastic message. And he preaches this gospel message, all working through Jewish history right up to the cross of Jesus Christ. And then persecution breaks out. Saul of Tarsus is there, and he's giving approval to his death. And so they stone Stephen to death, but before he dies, he prays, God, have mercy on them, which we see that God does have mercy, particularly on Saul of Tarsus, who later is confronted, and he gets born again in chapter 9. So this persecution breaks out. Acts chapter 8, there's an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the Bible, can't understand it, but God directed Philip, another deacon, to just go and and run up next to the cart and ask him if he needed help. Leads him to Jesus and and baptizes him. Saul gets converted on the road to Damascus, chapter 9. Peter has the vision. We spent some time in this last year when we were talking about becoming an Antioch church. Peter's, Peter has a vision of unclean animals, and uh, God says, rise, kill, and eat. And God's trying to tell him you need to get over your prejudice and open up to reaching Gentile people. He goes to Cornelius' house and preaches the cross of Jesus Christ, and people get saved. There's miracles, including a resurrection from the dead. That's Dorcas. Sorry about the name. And she gets raised to life. Peter gets miraculously delivered from prison in Acts chapter 12. A second lame man in Lystra gets healed during Paul's first missionary journey, journey and Paul gets stoned. Not the way you think. People threw rocks at him. And he's... <laughs> and he... he the, the Bible hints, intimates that perhaps he was... that perhaps he was stoned to death. Perhaps there's a resurrection there. There's at least a miraculous healing there. And he continues to preach. Then the Jerusalem council recognizes Gentiles as equal believers. We looked at that last year. Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man and begins his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas get thrown into prison again for preaching Jesus and seeing the power of God on display. And then there's a conversion of the jailer and his entire family. Then Paul goes to Athens in Acts chapter 17. I want you to move there. Go to Acts chapter 17 with me because there's another message that's recorded here. And and he's walking the streets and he wants to reach a culture with an anointing for Gentile people. And so he wants to reach them with a message. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. We're going to read a lengthy passage here, so just let me work through it together. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to your ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's that verse right there, Acts 17.21. That's the the seedbed of social media. Okay, anyway. (laughs) Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, 
I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. So now Paul is quoting pop culture and he's quoting their poets and he's He's invoking the Stoic and Epicurean style of communication. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, and a member, uh, who was a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Okay. So when you read the book of Acts, as I was trying to give a brief flyover, the arc of the storyline is Holy Spirit power, anointed preaching, supernatural results with varying degrees of persecution. That's what we see time and again on repeat through the book of Acts right up until this moment. And now... Paul, in this high-minded culture where people are very religious and have all kinds of gods, the Epicurean and Stoic approaches to communication were appealing to Paul because as you read the New Testament, you gather Paul was probably a genius in terms of academics and his intellect and IQ. And so he's very well learned and very well studied. And he decides, I'm going to adapt to this style. And so he begins to quote pop culture. He begins to speak from their platform and look at the unknown God. It's not a God made out of silver. Let me just try to get this in here. And it says the result. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So in Athens, Paul quotes the recording artists of his day, uses the rhetorical style of the Stoics, and a few people become followers of Jesus. And then he goes to Corinth. So I now want you to go on a tour with me. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because Paul here outlines the way that he approached the Corinthian church 
coming out of his sermon at the Areopagus. He leaves after seeing what we could say is a handful of conversions. Dionysus, Damaris, and a number of others. It's not the thousands of Acts chapter 2. It's not the 2,000 of Acts chapter 4. It's not preaching on the heels of a miracle as Acts chapter 3 and elsewhere. It's, it's not power producing question, producing conviction. He's using the style of the day and a handful of believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. Let me read that again. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I take this to mean that Paul left Athens trembling. Because the arc of the storyline is power, conviction, mass salvation, perhaps persecution, but deepened conviction, and on and on the story goes. And when Paul came to Athens, he changed it up a bit. And he starts to quote the culture and he starts to appeal in the style and he uses the rhetorical style that was common to the Stoics and Epicureans. And when he comes to the end, they're like, this is interesting, maybe talk to us again. And two people we can name, Dionysus and Damaris, become followers of Jesus and a number of others. And Paul picks up from there and as he travels to Corinth, I get the sense he starts to labor in prayer. Lord, something was missing. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. But for some reason, Paul says, when I showed up, I came in weakness and trembling and fear. I think it might be. Because when he stood with his rhetoric, and when he stood with the authority of of pulling on, you know, the unknown God. And, and, it's, and, and let me just kind of, and he preached resurrection. We read it. But he didn't preach Christ and him crucified. And when he got to Corinth, he changed his mind. He said, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words. And I wasn't trying to impress anybody. And I wasn't selling you resurrection. I was telling you, Christ and him crucified is the message that must be heard. And I would propose to you 
the devotion of the early church, they devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching. What is that apostolic message? Christ and him crucified. Not wise and persuasive words, not trying to fancy it up. If you go to the chapter ahead of this in, in, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about the ability to actually empty the cross of its power by how I talk about it. That if I try to make it sound smart, I weaken it. And if I try to make it sound powerful, I cheapen it. But if I preach Christ and him crucified, it releases the power of the Holy Spirit into the hearers that there's a God who is acquainted with suffering, who's not separate from my pain, but stepped into it, not because of his need for punishment, but because of his love to prevent the punishment that we deserve. And Christ came and was crucified and laid down his life that the sins of the whole world could be nailed to him. And that the curse could be broken off of every hearer, whether you're a high-minded Athenian or whether you're just, just you know, working through the day and not really thinking on high-minded things. Christ and him crucified. It's the message of the church. No poets, no rhetoric, no wise and persuasive words. Christ and him crucified. The early church was devoted to this message. Why? Paul said why? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but that it might rest on the power of God. Paul dug in here, and we can, we can pick up this theme throughout all of the epistles that he, wrote, that he writes. He talks about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. I know it's foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. The same message lands on one set of ears as stupid, and it lands on someone else's ears as power. Paul said, I want to partner with the Holy Spirit and not try to outwit him, not try to get ahead of him, not try to come with my persuasive ability. I will depend and I will glory in the cross. And I will preach Christ and him crucified. And let that be the basis, and the foundation, and the seedbed of faith. We can preach Bible messages with style and suave, but we need to bring the whole message back to this simple truth. Jesus came into this world. He took on the sins of the whole world. Your sin and my sin. Everything that separated us from God, he stepped in and absorbed it so that if we would turn to him in faith, repent of our sin, we could be cleansed. Christ in him crucified. Romans chapter 5 would be a synopsis of what this message sounded like in apostolic teaching. Romans 5 verse 6 to 11 says, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What am I selling to you as a preacher? You're powerless and ungodly. Well, that doesn't sound very, very empowering. Couldn't you tell me that I'm, I'm at least spiritual? You see, at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and that's me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation praise God Christ and him crucified produces reconciliation in us reconciliation involves a change in the relationship between God and man there was a breakdown in the relationship but now there's been a change from a state of enmity and alienation to one of harmony and friendship that is the message that every person, whether they know it or not, is waiting to hear. There's a God who knows. There's a God who's created everything. There's a God who loves and listens and cares. And you're separated from him and you know it. How do you know it? Because I feel the weight of sin. I didn't know what to call it, but that's what it is. I feel the shame of my past mistakes. I feel the shame of the things that somehow inherently I know they're not right. Why? Because God has imprinted his image on us and inside I've got a conscience and the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to me even when I don't know God. I love you and you're separate from me. And reconciliation is that God took it upon himself. I couldn't reconcile myself to God. He took it upon himself. We're in a relationship. What I'm longing for is a relationship with God of harmony and fellowship. Adam and Eve at the very beginning broke faith with God. We've been sinning ever since. We've all fallen short and sinned. and fallen short of God's glory. We're born into a world of sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I deserve to die for my sin. My conscience bears witness to that. But God loved us so much that he gave us a gift. His one and only son came, took the penalty that I deserved. And through his perfection, he, he was crucified and died for me, died as me and then is raised to new life and through faith in him I can be set free from sin because he killed it in his own flesh Christ and him crucified and so we're going to come to the table of the Lord today which commemorates the final meal that Jesus had with his disciples and I'm going to ask those who are prepared to distribute the elements of communion if they would go ahead and help me with that right now And as they're coming, in this room today, as the family of God, we're going to come to the table of the Lord. We're going to come to the table where Jesus talked about this bread and this, this wine, this juice. He talked about it 
as emblematic of his broken body and his shed blood. And he had this meal with his disciples saying to them, this bread is my, my body, this cup is my blood. Not speaking cannibalistically and not speaking in some weird way, but metaphorically talking about the need for death as punishment for sin. And Jesus saying before he offered his life, this broken bread and this cup represents my broken body and my shed blood, which is for you. That if you take it and you eat it, what you're saying is, this is not remote and distant from me. You can feel free to distribute while I'm sharing. But that I could actually be brought in to the body of Christ, what sits here in this room, followers and lovers of Jesus. That I could actually participate through faith, repenting of my sin, and of living for myself, turning toward God in repentance and faith. And so as these elements are being distributed through the room, I want you to keep an eye on those so that you can pass those elements along. But I also want to ask in this room that as this message has been preached and as you stand or sit here in this room, if the truth of your heart and the truth of your spiritual condition is such that you would be aware, I don't know Jesus. In fact, the comments I made at the beginning was like, how do people think they know Jesus? Like, they have to get on a plane and go to Jerusalem or get a time machine and go back? No, the Holy Spirit introduces us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's in this room right now, producing conviction of sin. Not so that we would yield to that and give in to shame, but so that we could actually yield to that in humility and say I was wrong, I've been wrong I'll be wrong again, I need a savior I need to be cleansed I need to be forgiven I need to be born again I'd like to start over, today is the day of salvation, today's the day of new life, today's the day of reconciliation, what separates you can be overcome through the body and blood of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so this morning, if, if as you sit in this room today, you'd say, you know what? I need to submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus. I need to come under His leadership. I need to repent. That is, I need to change what I've been thinking. I need to confess that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I need to be cleansed. Today's the day to do it. The Spirit of God is here witness that to your heart and so be, as these elements are being distributed if you're here and you'd say yeah I, I need to ask Jesus to cleanse and forgive me and you'd say well what do I do about it we'll, we'll pray about it we'll ask Jesus to forgive and the Bible says that he's faithful and he's just he will he'll not only forgive us but he'll cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. He'll take our sin, the Bible says, and he'll move it as far as the east is from the west. That's what he'll do. Do you know if you're heading north, if you head far enough north, eventually you'll hit the North Pole, and once you pass it, 
you start heading south. And if you keep doing that, you'll hit the South Pole and you'll start heading north. But if you head east, you can head east and never, ever start heading west so long as you head east. And as far as the east is from the west, God will take your sin and remove it from you. Today's the day of salvation. So today, if you need to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, right where you are in this room, heads are up, eyes are open. If you're here and you say, I, I need to ask Jesus to cleanse and forgive me before we even partake of communion. If that's you, I just want you to lift up your hand so that we can acknowledge that. And we'll pray together and ensure that in this room, Jesus is Lord of everyone that God is working on your heart. So if God's working on your heart this morning, then you need to ask Jesus to come and be the Lord of your life. I want you just to lift a hand so that I can pray with you and acknowledge that. Yes. That's one there. Two. Three. Thank you, Lord. Four. Anyone else? It's just God working in your heart. Like this is for me. Would it be anyone else? room saying yes to the Lordship of Jesus, which is amazing. Praise God. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you raised your hand, in a moment we're going to participate in communion, and then we're going to worship. We'll open up the altar right over here on my right and your left. Some of our pastors are going to come here, and as others come for prayer for various things, if you raise your hand, we want to pray what we call the sinner's prayer with you. We just want to lead you in a prayer of submitting your life to the Lordship of Jesus. And today, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you're saved. God, God went through all kinds of difficulty to make it so simple to come to know him and be put in a right relationship with him. And so even that act of faith, as you put prayer behind it, today, before you leave this room, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're born again, reconciled, and your sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Praise God. So I want us, as a church family, I want us to partake in communion. We're going to take these elements into our hands. First Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing to that church talking about this sacrament, this practice that comes out of the apostles' teaching. It's our response. And he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. Just in your hand, can you just break that? Just He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. Let's do that together this morning. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood. Whenever you take this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake together of the cup. Thank you, Jesus. Would you stand to your feet? lift your face toward heaven. Would you do that? Just a posture of worship and response to the Lord. Why don't we just begin to say our thanks to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for Christ and Him crucified. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and paid the price for our sin. Let's respond in worship and in song together. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at lakebound.ca or download our app for your mobile device. 